Hello, it's John again here, and it might be with a great sigh of relief that you have finished our journey through the Book of Romans. The good news is I've now got another journey for you, and I want to begin today uh, a new series of podcasts for those who uh, enjoyed Romans and are finding stuff helpful. Uh, thank you very much if you are. Please tell your chums, etc. And for this series, I've decided to revisit some material which I used in June 2000 and which I hope to write up as a book once I've got my doctoral thesis submitted, which hopefully should be any time soon. Like Romans, this is one of my favourite bits of the Bible, but this time we're in the proper Bible, the Old Testament, rather than uh, what my Old Testament tutor used to call the appendix. And we're going to be looking at the wilderness narrative and the story which spans the period between Israel leaving Egypt and their arrival in the promised land they are just going to arrive and we're going to stop there so it really is about the journey through the wilderness i love moses as a leader i've learned so much from him over the years he's certainly my greatest old testament hero and i'm going to suggest that church leaders today have a tremendous amount to learn from him and often what we can learn from him flies in the face of current wisdom. So if I do ever write this book, I want to call it Moses and the Art of Politically Incorrect Leadership. But I'm also going to suggest that church members as well have a tremendous amount to learn from this story. Uh, those who are leading, but also how to be led well, or in many cases in this story, how not to be led well. So I'm going to look at selected highlights from this period, but I'm also going to miss out some boring bits which don't particularly uh, interest me. So unlike Romans, we're not going to kind of go through and cover every single bit of it. And there will be great leaps and jumps along the way. So let me begin, as always, with an introduction. Just what is it we're studying and how can we read it properly? We're going to be looking at passages from Exodus and Numbers. That's the two books that cover this particular period. So what are these books? And uh, if we understand that, we'll know better how to read them. Well, they're part of the Pentateuch, uh, as the Pent prefix suggests. It's the first five books of both our Bible and the Hebrew Bible, Genesis to Deuteronomy. Um, they're called in the Hebrew Bible the Torah, which means the law, although there's a lot more to them than the law, although uh, Mount Sinai is a kind of central point in the narrative. They're traditionally being called the five books of Moses, 
because he was believed to have written all of them. And we'll see in a minute, actually, that's highly unlikely uh, that he did. Despite the name Torah Law, they're actually historical books, or actually a mix mixture of history and prehistory, with the giving of the law as a kind of central pivot point. So how do we read these kind of books? How do we read this literature? I always teach my students to ask a few important questions when they're approaching any text. Who, when, where, how and why? And we're going to find out, as usual, that these questions or the answers to these questions are interlinked. So let's begin with who. We've said that it was uh, traditional that Moses wrote all five of these books. And if you look in the authorised version of the uh, English Bible, they're all called the five books of Moses. And that was accepted really until about the 12th century when a rabbi called Abraham Ibn Ezra noted a couple of curiosities. So in Genesis 12, Abraham travelled through the land as far as the site of the great tree of Moray at Shechem. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. How did Moses know that? He never ever made it into Canaan. And then Genesis 22.14. So Abraham called that place the Lord will provide. And to this day it is said on the mountain of the Lord it will be provided. Uh, that's what's known as an etiology, a little story which explains a present-day custom or place name or something. There are lots of those in the Old Testament. Uh, but again, to what day is it said? What does that say about Moses' authorship? And then, of course, you've got the few verses right at the end of Deuteronomy 34. What happens after Moses has died? And great leader though he was, even Moses couldn't have written about his own death and afterwards. So Abraham Ibn Ezra noted these curiosities, but didn't think about them anymore. He, he merely noted them. But then his work was picked up 400 years later by uh, Baruch Spinoza, who was a Dutch Jewish philosopher. And Spinoza claimed that Ibn Ezra didn't believe Moses wrote it all, which was wrong. He still did, in spite of those uh, slight uh, little problems. But Spinoza built on those curiosities and added a load more questions. So in that sense, Spinoza, although known as a philosopher, was one of the very early fathers of critical theology, um, asking awkward questions behind the text in order to understand it better. The next important figure was a French philosopher called Jean Anstruc, 
who in 1753 noted that when reading Genesis, the Hebrew used Elohim in some bits for God and Yahweh in others. And again, he thought this was uh, a curious thing that you should have two different names for God. And so he proposed two different sources written at different times and which referred to God differently. And that idea came to fruition in 1895 when a German theologian called Julius Wellhausen came up with the documentary hypothesis of the Pentateuch. Uh, There will be an exam on this, by the way, at the end of this series, so learn well. Uh, The documentary hypothesis said that there are, in fact, not two, but four sources in the Pentateuch that they pre-existed separately. They would have circulated as separate documents or, or possibly oral traditions. And about 400 years before Christ, they were edited together into the Pentateuch that we know and love today. And once you get that idea, you can suddenly see that it makes a whole lot of sense. So, for example, in the flood narratives, you've got two different sources woven together, not always that skillfully. So, for example, Noah gets into the ark three times. Um, On one occasion, he takes two of each kind of animal. On another occasion, he takes seven of some of the animals. And so, clearly, it's possible to pick apart these two sources, to unravel them, and come up with two perfectly coherent narratives. And it's possible to work out which strand, which source different bits come from, although that is a bit too technical for this podcast. You'll just have to believe me on that one. So you've got four strands pre-existing as separate documents, probably. The earliest uses the name Yahweh for God, so that's called J, because sometimes Yahweh is spelt beginning with J instead of Y. And that comes from around 950 BC, something like that. So after David's reign, perhaps during Solomon's reign. The next source is about 200 years later, 750, and that uses the word Elohim for God, and so therefore that's called the E source. And the narrative that we're going to be looking at in this series contains just these two, some J material, some E material. But just for completeness, because I know you're fascinated, there are two more sources, the D source, the Deuteronomic source, mainly uh, within the Pentateuch, the book of Deuteronomy itself, probably written during the exile and written to answer the question, how did we get in this mess? 
And then finally, the priestly source, probably after the exile, after uh, Israel was back in its own land again. And that's the source where you get lots of lists of names and, and, and numbers and so on, which we normally read uh, miss out when we're reading it. Um, the priestly material looks like official archives. And we reckon that probably, having realised how easily a culture could be destroyed during the exile, the priests set out to compile all these archives so that everything was written down carefully and logically for future generations. And those four sources are woven together into the form we have, as I said, uh, somewhere in the 4th century BC. So that's the nature of the literature. And for our purposes in this series, we are going to find differences. We are going to find repetition of, of the same stories in different places. That's because of these two sources, J and E, uh, being combined together uh, and not always with total harmony. The when question, well, we've answered that already. Um, 950 and 750 combined in 4th century. That's when it was put together. But what about the events? Well, obviously much earlier. It's generally reckoned that the exodus from Egypt took place about 1300 BC. And so the narrative that we're going to be looking at would be from that date and for 40 or 50 years onward from there. Third question is how. How is it presented? What kind of literature is it? Well, it's historical narrative. And that's as opposed to other things like poetry or philosophy or wisdom uh, and uh, other things that you'll find in the Bible. And as we said, like all history, it's written from particular points of view and with particular purposes. But it's particularly, I think, wanting to show the contrast between the faithfulness of Moses and the unfaithfulness of the people whom he was going to lead. Why? Well, because all societies like to write accounts of their history so that hopefully we can learn lessons from the past and live better in the future. And also, therefore, that's why it does us good to read it. This isn't just about Jewish history. It's about lessons from God's people in the past for us to learn from uh, lessons both positive and negative so that our relationship with God can be lived out well and of course it's also part of the revelation of the whole Bible about what God is like who is this God uh, what's he like what does he want from us what does he want for us those kind of questions so that's introductory matter. 
Let me end by asking the question, what are we going to hear in this cycle of stories? Well, it's a journey. It's a physical, geographical journey from Egypt to the Promised Land. But on other levels, it's also the journey of a bunch of people from being a rabble of slaves to being a nation living under their God. We're going to hear how that relationship with God was shaped and how it grew and sometimes how it went wrong. We're going to hear a lot about Moses and his leadership of the people. In fact, we're probably going to hear... uh, a bit more about that because like any historian that's the bit I'm particularly interested in Moses as leader. We're also going to hear about the people and their reluctance to be led. We're going to see miracles happening. We're going to see the Holy Spirit at work and we're going to see human sin and corruption spoiling all that. In fact, we're going to learn a tremendous amount about the nature of sin and how it works. We're going to see strong emotions. We're going to see some scenes which some viewers might find disturbing, although there isn't a helpline that you can ring if you have been touched by any of the issues. But above all, we're going to see a faithful God leading and guiding his people to better places and greater maturity, whether they wanted to go or not. So that's the journey that will be going on over the next 15 weeks or so. So all aboard and we set off next week from the Red Sea.